Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Um, thank you as always to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring the show. Um, on today's episode, I'm speaking to Matt Jackson, uh, Head of Data Science at Netasia, um, a Manchester-based scale-up whose mission is to harness the power of AI to protect and optimize all of the world's biggest websites. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Cheers. Cheers for having me. So usually we go through education for the first five, ten minutes. Unfortunately, we lost that bit of the recording with Matt. And he's a busy man, so rather than getting him to do it all again, here's a quick synopsis of Matt's background. He has a first-class degree in physics um, and then decided uh, after that that he quite fancied uh, doing a PhD. Um, so he did a PhD in physics, um, ended up working uh, at CERN in Switzerland, which is pretty cool, uh, and we'll mention it again later on in the show. But for now, let's jump into um, the rest of Matt's career. You can totally see how... Um people drop out of a PhD like you said in that kind of three year mark because they've done they've done a lot of work but there's still quite a lot to go and like you said it is a bit of a struggle so like you can, it makes sense I suppose that you see a lot of people that maybe finish it later or or never go back to it yeah exactly I, I think the the support structures in in academia particularly with PhD students are are poor you know often people who are, are supervisors um are, what well, they're always academics themselves, right? And their interest is in in science. So, although they're they're very collaborative and it's a really nice environment in that way, they also just kind of expect you to be a genius, and <laughs> and that that's that's not the case. And you know, I'm sure you've talked on the podcast about like imposter syndrome, all that kind of stuff. I mean, working in in CERN, in, imposter syndrome hits hard and when your your supervisor just kind of expects you to know all that stuff as well it's it's pretty intense yeah no i bet and also i don't know if it, i don't know if it's the same at, at phd level with supervisors and stuff but i always got the feeling that there were certain lecturers at uni that were in it for the academia and teaching was like a bit of a bollock like they didn't really want to speak to students they were more in it for their own research yeah there's definitely a a mix um so my uh, kind of alluded before my master's supervisor was definitely all about the teaching and he he would have like cues out of his office for students asking for help because he was just so approachable and literally never said no but yeah you get the the opposite end of the spectrum that I know people who had you know supervisors who they spoke to a handful of times across the four years and it's yeah that's that's not good. Yeah, that's not enough. Was the was the kind of academic life ever an option? Like, was there ever a thought after the PhD, like, I could do this for a while? Yeah. So, as I said before, there's tons of stuff about the the lifestyle that's that's good, particularly in in such a big collaboration as as the Atlas Detector, because you know meetings were all over the world. You know, lots of expenses paid, holidays. Uh, <laughs> lots of interesting people to talk to all, all that kind of stuff so that that side of it is is appealing but also you know if you've got you know partners family whatever the job security and, and having to it it's not even the security it's the expectation of moving universities every three or four years you know which could be anywhere in the world it's yeah it's, it's too difficult to plan there's no such thing as like a permanent job in academia, is there? Like, even if you're there at one uni for ages, it could just crop up that you're now going to Birmingham and like you've been in Edinburgh for your whole life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the the other thing that that put me personally off academia is the the kind of people that do it as a career. They absolutely love it, and it's it's their it's their hobby, it's their life. You know, it, it's. Not in all cases, but often it's it's all 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 they do. Um, yeah. And as interested as I am in in physics and data science, I still want to go home and do other things and and see friends and family and and have other interests and be a more rounded person, I guess. And run a bunch of crazy triathlons, just stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, although you could have coupled your. Uh, triathlete career with your hopping university career and just like tick them all off yeah I think you get some pretty good heat maps on Strava <laughs> <laughs> running all over the world yeah. so that takes us to kind of like 
early 2015 and you obviously made the decision to move out or after your PhD to not stay in academia and you joined We Buy Any Car, which now probably everybody knows, but maybe back then not so much. They wouldn't have been as well known, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, it was it was pre-Philip Schofield, but during the, uh, the annoying jingle. I think the annoying jingle had happened. I would take the annoying jingle back over Schofield. <laughs> I remember when... Uh, Liam Fulton told me that he got like Philip Schofield was going to be the marketing like face of, and I just couldn't believe it. Um, it's such a weird marriage. Yeah, I guess just putting a recognisable face on anything is is a good move. Yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 it's more weird for him, but yeah, I, I didn't get it. Um, but yeah, you could you joined them. I think I looked at your LinkedIn as a commercial analyst, but looking back, it, if data sign was more of a term you would have been a data scientist right like that was basically what you were doing for them yeah so i don't know if data science wasn't was a thing back then which is i was yeah I was, I was trying to think i think when i first met a couple of clients i'm sure it was i'm sure it was early late 2015 or early 2016 when they said oh we want a data scientist and i was like oh yeah of course i didn't have any idea what that meant but <laughs> it's, it's it was relative it was relatable to other data it? things it was potentially when I left. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, that that wasn't with them. Um, but yeah, I was trying to I was trying to piece together when you joined them when we would have had our first roles on as data scientists. Yeah. Because um, before that, we've like we've had a few discussions on the on the show, and like we had a lot of people who worked in finance as like risk modelers, and um, some of them were just like pure statisticians. And now all their job titles probably would have been changed if they were still there. But yeah, I looked at what you were doing, and I remember when we spoke way back. But it was all like around different predictions automation across the business um stuff that you would expect to do as a data scientist basically right yeah definitely so i think that when i joined we buy any car it's a pretty similar story to when i started my phd maybe with a, a less glamorous outcome um but i was you mentioned before so i spent a, a year in switzerland um during my phd towards the end and then kind of came back to write up um, and in that time, my, my partner, Jess, she got a job and moved to Manchester um, and kind of, it was, I guess, my turn to not be traveling around the world and kind of let her focus a little bit more on, on her career. So I needed a job to to pay the bills. But as you said, back then, data science wasn't a thing and no idea. Um, I didn't even know about recruiters. Um an easier time some would say yeah so just basically applied for anything i think the job title at webernica was pricing analyst um but when i went in to talk to them it was one of these kind of like oh we've got this special project that no one's been able to crack you've got a phd you can do it um which is kind of nice because these kind of open-ended um problems that no one's really had a good go at often have a lot of low-hanging fruit and you can have a lot of success so that, that was pretty much it I kind of sat in a, a silo team of one um trying to solve a a single problem um but yeah it was a it was a eye-opening time yeah i was gonna say was it was it like looking back now maybe when you you were there it might not have been like this but looking back now was it quite fun putting some of the skills you learned as a physicist into practice in like a kind of moving parts organization like there was there was a, there was a kind of real outcome to what you were doing yeah i think the that 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 was true the, the biggest jump for me was going from writing software analyzing data with that software to oh we use excel and i think there was spss modeler um so there was a huge learning curve, not only to kind of figure out how the quote unquote commercial world works, which became a bugbear of mine at the time, you know, the the, the standard, well, you don't have commercial experience, um, which now probably see see the value in that comment. But anyway, that's, a, that's, another, <laughs> that's another thing. Um, so yeah, kind of learning the business side, but also trying to, I guess, make what became data science a thing in that company, you know, moving away from Excel spreadsheets and showing that, you know, there's, there's value that can be delivered in this data. Um, yeah. 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 It's probably quite, it's one of the reasons I'm sure that you've ended up doing really well is because 
you had to probably fight some of those fights like early. Like there's probably quite a lot. I, don't, you make yourself, I make me and you sound very old here. It's like, oh, the young data scientists nowadays. Um, but loads of them will join companies where data is available readily. It's in a relatively good state. And the company is bought into what a data scientist does. So like your job is just to be pretty good at your job, um, which is a nice place to be. But yeah, I think f- back then for you, it was a lot about proving proving yourself, proving concepts and getting people on side, which is, like you said, all very good skills to get. Yeah, and kind of understanding the the kind of context and, and wider picture. It's funny, actually, just just the other day, I was talking to, to one of our um, more junior data scientists. So he is um, a few years out of a postdoc, um, super bright, really, really... Um, you know, focused and ambitious and is, is building confidence up, but then he's getting to the point where he's confident so he can rush headlong into things and be like, why are we not doing this like this? Why are they doing that like this? And it's that skill of learning which battles to fight and and how you how you take an idea and turn it into something that people want to invest in, either in the company level or I guess in a startup, the literal investment. Yeah, no, but I, I think, like you said, it's a kind of it's almost a separate skill like you need to get your head around that the business wants to make money at the end of the day in most cases in most cases when they hire a data scientist is to improve some sort of financial result or return on investment um so yeah you as a data scientist you kind of need to get that part because otherwise like you said you can just run on head first into problems that maybe you don't need to run into yet um and and understand like how to explain that to the business so at, at we buy any car obviously that business started a bunch of guys at a warehouse and started selling cars so yeah. obviously the the people running that company are not analysts at, at the time at least um so they're very focused on certain numbers and as a data scientist or analyst coming in and challenging that and being like well let's not look at this number every every week let's look at how it plays across the year and how we can can impact that kind of going on those journeys with with people was massively valuable yeah no i bet and um kind of we'll, we'll quickly go through the next couple of things as well so you kind of moved on from we buy any car um i went to hmrc uh as i kind of data scientist job title um when i was thinking looking back at this the sound of like the idea of working from HMRC really doesn't fill me with any excitement. But then I started thinking about it from like a data problem, and it was probably quite interesting. I would have thought. Yeah. So the so yeah the, the the problem that was pitched to me at HMRC was you know putting together this kind of new data science um, team. I guess data science became a thing in in the the year before that, um, <laughs> and basically you want to take all the legacy data warehouses and build a a data lake or whatever term was in vogue for it back then. Um, these things come around, don't they? But yeah, and it, it sounded really interesting. And at the time, you know, I was kind of really junior, kind of trying to balance my academic experience and the skills that I could bring with the the commercial experience. Um, so the the idea was it was a kind of a new team and you'd be supported in building this this big yeah spark cluster whatever it was um so it, it sounded like really interesting yeah no i mean it, it did sound cool and then uh we kind of we've got I, I can't remember what were you looking to leave hmrc or did we take you out <laughs> yeah i i i, I was looking because the the reality is government is slow <laughs> like the yeah. civil service is they've got so many good people there so many good ideas but it's yeah, it, it wasn't for me. I, li- I yeah. like kind of thinking about what I'm doing at the end of the week, not in five years, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, oh, that's a really good idea, Matt. We'll get that implemented uh, next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and it's what's always confused me about people that have worked at very big companies for their entire career. Like, it must just be, a, it's just a different pace, I suppose. 
but yeah, so that takes us to kind of early 2016 when when we kind of first crossed paths um, and you started working at, um, at Metafused, uh, who at the time were a kind of very small Manchester-based analytics startup. Um, from memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of relatively small tech team there was pretty, like, it was pretty good, though. Like, it was pretty high-caliber people. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So when I joined, who was there? We had the CEO... CTO, head of engineering, me sat in an office, and we had some um, such a bad office as well. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Though it's been done up now. If you if you've walked it's, past, uh, not of interest to most people on this podcast, but yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's actually very nice now. I have went past it recently. Um, yeah, so there's a four of us and um, a couple of interns who were like you know, super bright Manchester Uni students. Um, oh, I remember they used interns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's good and bad news about joining a startup like that is that you probably learned more in your year and a bit there than most people will in 10 years at HMRC. Um, And you also got to meet people like Paul Maddox, um, who are are very, very bright and have worked for some really interesting companies. But I suppose the, the flip side is that there's that inherent risk with startups. Like from, again, from memory, from speaking to you and Paul, the tech was like really good but the sales didn't match up or, or the use cases for the tech didn't match up. So it didn't end up working out. Um, but still probably quite an interesting place to be, right? Yeah, I mean, it was at times stressful. Um, yeah, at, at times amazing, but I think, you know, it was working with, with those people. So you, you talked about Paul, who is just, he just knows his shit. <laughs> like yeah. he's, he's so he's so good. Um I just remember in my, my first week there, having had quite a, a a disappointing time at HMRC, not really getting my hands on the tech that I, I wanted as kind of a week in and uh, had to catch up with Paul at the end of the week and just said to him, I don't think I'm good enough for this job. <laughs> just because like, he, he so, his, his kind of, I guess, knowledge and ability was so intimidating. Um, but then, you know, he was a, a very good supportive manager. It was like, you know what you're chatting on about you're doing like amazing it's week one and you done da, 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 da. so yeah then kind of yeah the, the business grew and as these like early stage startups do it's it fluctuates so one week like everything's going great and then the next week you pivot and it's all very stressful but I think that the learning experience as you say it's just probably 10 years crammed into a year learning technology how to build MVPs, which no matter if you're working in startups or in data science teams, and this is just my personal bias, I guess, but I just approach every problem like it's a mini startup within a company and just kind of how to get that over the line and iterate and all those all yeah. those buzzwords. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I totally know what you mean. And I often wonder, like, I don't know if Paul ever realizes like how good he is, um, but loads of people seem to have enjoyed working with him and uh, and some of the other Metafuse team, to be fair. But yeah, I think maybe for any more junior data scientists listening, or anyone really, I suppose, but like taking a bit of a risk with a startup like that, when the market is so buoyant in the UK and, and further afield now, in my opinion, is definitely worth it. Like, even if it only lasts six months, eighteen months, it it doesn't really matter. Like, you'll get another job, but you learn so much from taking a bit of a risk. Yeah, um, I, I think I'd agree. A, a younger me was probably very naive; I had no clue that it was that much of a risk. Um, and you kind of you, you learn these things as as you go along. But I think, as you say, that because you're working at such a pace and you get involved with things that maybe as a data scientist you wouldn't always so the data engineering side of things you know back then there wasn't ml engineers and data engineers it was you know you said everything. And, yeah so then you, you learn everything and then suddenly your cv is 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 amazing i always joke with some of our newer starters at netasia you know like you're learning all this stuff you know, like the most employable people on the planet. Like the the market is that that hot that you know the opportunity is there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. If you're if you're working in a kind of fast paced, uh, interesting tech company, then as long as you add some value, then yeah, you're going to get loads out of it as well. 
So we'll move on from that uh, to you kind of followed Paul. I think this is how it works. You followed Paul to now healthcare, right? Kind of. There's a there's a gap between that. So when Paul moved on, we got a, a new CEO um, who he was straight from straight from Silicon Valley. Is this very charismatic American guy? Um, I'm not naming his name because he, he might want to be, be be named. But he was he was a completely different manager to to Paul. But he taught a lot on the kind of product side. So there was that that time was really stressful, but there was a really fun period of time where basically the the product that we were building had basically been disbanded and um the CEO um and and the new CTO were basically going out pitching for investment, trying to pivot the business, um, which meant me and the the head engineer spent six months just prototyping different things and playing with tech so although the job security was stressful like that that was the most amazing time just from a purely just playing with stuff um yeah just enjoying then, it yeah but then yeah in in the end i think that that lifestyle became a, a little bit too much so decided to to move on here yeah, uh, yeah, and then you ended up with back with Paul, um, at a kind of healthcare startup. We won't we won't go into loads on it, but anyone that's listened to the show before will always remember that I tell a story that there's a data scientist that I know pretty well that joined a company as two of the data, like two people joined the data science team, but there wasn't really any data, and you were just told to crack on. Um, you're that data scientist. You're the person I always <laughs> talk about. Yeah. Uh, that- that, that was pretty much it. I, I think my my experience in the six months prior to that probably set me up quite well um, and kind of, yeah, arriving and there not being any much, uh, well, there's a little bit, but not much data to go off. Um, Is it, was it one of those cases where, so I suppose it was probably one of your first experiences of like a company not being ready for a data scientist, but thinking, either thinking it was a good idea or they were trying to get ahead of the curve or for investment, whatever it might be. But was it maybe one of those where data science was so hot and the company had a little bit of data, but in reality to make a data scientist like worth it, you've got to have like a real plan for them and a lot of data. Yeah, I, th- I think that's <laughs> that's pretty much. It. I mean, it's a it's a difficult one because the the kind of space they're in, you know, um, like telehealth tech and and that area, the, there was clearly going to be data. Um, it so it's kind of what comes first. I'd argue that you know hiring a data scientist to do it at the time, I was probably not the right person to do that because my strategic I was was not that finely tuned um and it probably needed somebody to come in and kind of set that direction rather than someone to be hired and told oh you can build this stuff you know back then my response was well what stuff <laughs> like what, what 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 do you want to build well i mean it was a, again it was a fun experience we just ended up prototyping stuff and building all, all sorts of cool stuff um, yeah does it get to a point though and i know from speaking to alan who you worked th- there with as well and, and he's experienced this in other places but like the prototyping and the having fun with technology it's amazing for a point and then you're kind of thinking like well like what's the point like none of it's ever been used so although like you could maybe coast by or get away with it or the company has loads of money so it doesn't really matter whatever it might be they'll probably get to a point like kind of a bit of like professional not professional prize, not the right word, but like kind of ambition. You want to like get your stuff out there. Yeah, and I think the the company needs to to want it, and it needs to not be a vanity project. Um, yeah, I think there, there came a, a time at that particularly com- particular company where um, a, a member of senior management who um, not really encountered too much. Um, just kind of stormed across the office and, and pointed at us and said, what, what, what do you do? What are you doing? And it's like, well, y- you hired us to do this and that's what we're trying to do. You need that kind of buy-in from, from the senior management downwards to say, we're investing in data science or AI or, or whatever. And this is our vision. Here is the data and here is, you know, where it's this whole enablement thing, right? Yeah. Um, and if data science is just a vanity project to, to get investment, it's never going to work. 
Yeah, and the problem back then as well, and I say back then like it was so long ago, but I, th- I feel like we've matured a little bit. But like, there was there wasn't really like a a plethora of experienced data scientists. So lots of these companies were bringing in people with way less experience than you, and just saying, "On you go." And it's just like you can totally see why all of those projects didn't work. Like yeah. <laughs> I, not, not 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 just in that company. I mean, just like everywhere. Yeah, I, I think I think that's definitely true. I mean, now we have the the other problem that well, it's not a problem for companies; it's a problem for people like me that all these new graduates are coming through, and data science is a thing, and they've got tons of experience. So I think the the kind of influx of very capable people into the market with surprising amounts of you know commercial understanding and communication skills and all that is is um maybe flipping that problem on its head and and the lights of me are getting a little bit worried <laughs> and there's there's been so many less kind of active data science roles in the last maybe 18 months maybe a tiny bit longer where companies have slightly changed kind of tact and are looking for data engineers or ml engineers whatever it might be but we'll get and get onto that in a bit because i think sometimes it's just semantics but we'll jump into kind of early 2018 and it'll take us up till till today um but we kind of cross paths again and, and you end up at uh Netasia, who i think i'm right in saying we're a spin out of intechnica right like they kind of spun out to be their own business yeah it was a spin yeah. out at the time it was known as traffic defender yeah it was like a product within intechnica and then it became yeah, its exactly. own thing yeah 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 um and we've already touched on this actually, but a kind of bit of a theme with your career that Netasia were that kind of early stage spin out where nobody will be surprised to hear you probably quite enjoyed the kind of pace of work and, and getting an MVP spun up and all that kind of stuff. Um, what was there anything about Netasia that kind of really stood out in terms of the challenge? Yeah, so I think it was for me, it was actually having data and probably the opposite problem of having too much data, like overwhelming amounts of data um, in real time. You know, that was a, a new a new dimension, something that I hadn't tackled before because, yeah, do, do machine learning is one thing. Doing it in real time is is a whole different <laughs> different ballpark. Um, do you remember when you tried to do, well, successfully did, a real-time presentation at Mancamel? <laughs> Yeah, what? Oh, and I accidentally made a joke about a sex toy. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> which, which nobody else in the room seemed to twig, and I just stood there laughing. So I kind of doubly made myself a fool. Oh, that's annoying that I didn't. Yeah. I don't remember that. <laughs> but no, I remember you said we're going to do it real time, and I was just like, "Oh, that's ballsy." Yeah, I think it worked. It was the the, the, the um, session embeddings, wasn't it? Like the yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah, no, definitely worked. Um, yeah, so that was a whole different kind of angle to your job, basically. Um, and we've very briefly touched on it, but what kind of what do you and the team at Netasia, or what are, what are they trying to do as a company? Yeah, so I guess to distill it into its simplest form, it's it's bot management. So the data science team looks at web traffic in real time and tries to determine if something is automated traffic or not and what is the intent of of that traffic so stopping things anything from like product scraping on e-commerce sites to credential stuffing um all that kind of stuff and everything in between yeah so i remember i always remember uh speaking to andy still like way back when he was explaining traffic defender and it that it came about from glastonbury right that they helped like glastonbury not get inundated with bots so tickets went to real people yeah, I think that's the story. So that's way, way back in the day when I think Andy used the, the CTO at Netasia and, yeah. and Jeremy, the CEO, kind of, I always envision them in a garage somewhere doing it. That might not be true, but, but you know, at that kind of, they were young, up-and-coming tech people. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's pretty cool. And I, yeah, I never thought about the, the kind of credentials and passwords and all that kind of stuff, like how yeah. you could probably spot some of that. Um, and is it, you might not know this part of the business so well, but is it quite an easy sell, like the, the Netasia product? Like, do companies respond well to it? Because obviously it's you're helping them. Yeah, more more and more. So kind of like, you know, you think about like the hype cycles and kind of people getting invested in these things. I think over the, I was going to say three and, a, three and a half years, but with COVID, I'm always a year out. It's maybe, maybe coming up to four years, something like that anyway. I've seen this journey of like, at first it was really hard to get customers engaged because they didn't understand the problem space. Um, 
and now bot management is becoming an actual thing that the companies have on their security roadmaps and want to invest in. So I think the the stories change from being proactive and to try and get sales to customers coming in and saying, we've got all these problems. What can you do to, to solve them? And you're probably quite ahead of the game in comparison to some other people. Like you guys have been doing it well, before with Traffic Defender, but now with, with Netasia for, yeah, like four and a half years. So um, like the, the the product is there. Yeah, and I think we're, we're quite different from a lot of our competitors that we actually use machine learning um, as opposed to kind of bits of JavaScript on a page and, and that kind of, of solution. Um, and we, we've kind of we've grown massively from the, was it maybe 18 months ago, a year ago, and we were in the top right quadrant on the, the Forrester report. Um, and some of our competitors, especially the ones in the States who, who are not up there with us are, you know, heavily invested companies. So we've suddenly had an influx of very interested companies who have large amounts of web traffic. So the kind of the problem spaces is scaled up again, the orders yeah. of magnitude. And that must be exciting for you guys because the like you said it's all underpinned by data right so like for it to work your team is going to have to be on it yeah pretty 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 much i mean we're for some of our some of our customers now we're ingesting about fifty thousand log lines per second for an individual customer so the just the infrastructure challenge alone is yeah it oscillates between being terrifying and exciting <laughs> I wouldn't want to see your AWS bill. Um, but I suppose, like you said, having had the issues of not having data to now having that is pretty cool. Um, how does the real-time part play out? Like, do you guys essentially always have to be on? Like, does someone in the team always have to be available for that to work? Or is it is it kind of running in the background and it should be okay? It all runs in the background and in, in theory should be okay. So we... We do have kind of on-call teams, but I, again, probably because of my personal um, preference at the time, I've always been kind of against having too much on-call. You know, it's kind of build stuff that on-call should be the exception and not the rule, right? So it should yeah. be emergencies emergencies only. So, yeah, in, in theory, it um, just runs, runs like clockwork. So the, team's, <laughs> the, team, the team is so good. I think also it'd probably be fair to say that Netasia are maybe kind of it's a bit cliched, but like a kind of best kept secret in the Manchester tech scene. Like the data team that you've got when you look at it, and I suppose the wider team as well. I don't want to be disrespectful, but the data team you've built is like is really good. Like the people you've got working there are, are, are like top class data scientists, but because you guys don't have all the kind of fluff pieces in the press or nominate yourself for awards, like you maybe go under the radar a little bit. Do you think that's fair? I, I think it, I think it's definitely fair. Like when, when I first interviewed, I think I did, I just looked over the, the first job spec. So like, Oh, analyzing weblogs, that sounds well boring. <laughs> um, and I kind of went back and, and interviewed and yeah, a lot, a lot more exciting than, than I thought. But yeah, it it does seem to a little bit. Although we were talking yesterday, the the data science team is now now nine of us. Oh, we've not had a lot of kind of churn over the years, but we have produced three CTOs from the data science team. So that's that's pretty cool. Have you really? Yeah. I need to ask you off air who they are. I know who one of them is. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even the team you've got in place now, like if you look at it from from you down the way, like most companies in Manchester, maybe even the UK, would, would be lucky to have them as like a data scientist, but and you've got them all in one building. Yeah, definitely. I mean, been been super lucky and just like me personally have been lucky because obviously as Netasir, as I mean, I think you referred to us as a, a scale-up at the start, which is is definitely true. In my head, we're still a, a startup, but kind of I've been on that journey of being, so I, I wasn't the first tech hire, but there was two data scientists and I was hired as the uh, the the trendy ML engineer role trailblazing um, and it kind of gone on that that journey and because I essentially was part of the team that built everything scaling that team to to nine ten people if the if the people weren't good enough then my life would have been horrendous because letting go of some of that stuff 
um, is is really difficult. But because the the team's so great, it's yeah, it's I won't say effortless, but can can reluctantly let go. I also I imagine makes the job of like the commercial team, whether that's and in the board or the sales team, whatever, like it'll make that job a lot easier because you're not, it's not like you're not selling bullshit to people that you can do X, Y, and Z. Like the team's actually really good. So when you do get these massive orders with these huge new clients with these massive problems, it's fine because the team can handle it. Yeah. And, and they're not just good data scientists, they're good at explaining and describing. We, we always, always lead with our tech which is is really nice because like just through my experience of you know no data or pivoting every other week and trying to find product market fit all that it's so refreshing to be able to sit in front of a customer and you know you they're, they're given the pitch and immediately you can see the cynicism it's like oh ai what's this bullshit what do you actually do and to be able to with confidence say we actually do this stuff and we use it appropriately and don't try and crowbar it in it's just it just makes the job a lot easier <laughs> so you, you know you're not a salesperson you're just talking about the things that you've built yeah you don't have to worry about it you're just telling them what it does like you're and you know it does it yeah it's like uh, i don't know if you saw the the stat a while ago but it was like something like i'm gonna butcher this but it was like it was over like 80 percent of ai startups there's no ai like yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't use any artificial intelligence it's just some sort of data analytics and in some cases it's not even that yeah it's a it's a it's an aspiration for it so jess my my partner works in kind of angel seed investment and kind of helping facilitate that um and yeah it's it is true but the the unfortunate thing is that you're much more likely to get investment so if you're at that really early stage and you have aspirations to do that you're not necessarily lying you put in your pitch set this is what i'm wanting to do but then the reality is it's either not an appropriate problem for data science, machine learning to solve, or it's an incredibly challenging problem to solve. So you need a team of, of hundreds or, you know, whatever to try and crack that problem. Yeah. So there's so many startups where the kind of young plucky CTO or CEO has a kind of genuinely good idea and you can see how it would work, but quite often it involves like, cracking into the four major investment banks of the world and getting all of their data from them so they could solve this problem they might have and it's just like i know from working in the job that we do like getting in front of the right people selling it to them getting the data securely and actually being able to do it as a two-man band in manchester it's gonna be really hard yeah it's fun but <laughs> challenging yeah so it's a fun pitch and then you end up pivoting into something totally different we mentioned that uh, you were you were ahead of the game with a machine learning engineer title. Um, I'm going to chuck in a question about ML ops because I, I messaged you a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was doing a bit of research on it, and your answer was quite funny. That you just said that, and by the way, I'm definitely paraphrasing here, so don't don't worry. But you basically said that if you're doing data science properly, then you'll be doing ML ops essentially. Yeah, pretty much. And, and maybe maybe this is reflective of my kind of product development background that I've always been building products. So for me, that's that's common sense. You know, you got to think about how it actually works. It might be less less the case in like e-commerce or pricing and that kind of area where it's very much feeding back to stakeholders and, and so on. But I still, I still think it's it's important in that case. It, it's been, it made me laugh like when, when you asked because it's something you know you start seeing on blogs and and such things like these these words cropping up and these like new buzz phrases and it's like is is that necessary is this not what is this not the job <laughs> you know like yeah i think so i'll ask you if you think it's just a bit of a hype train like we just said there but also i suppose the problem that some people have have mentioned to or, to me when they've asked about it and if that's if i've seen a kind of growth in this area is that there's quite a lot of companies where there's one or two data scientists kind of a bit like when you were at WeBanicar, like you were on your own in a team and then another one comes in and then maybe someone else comes in and then maybe you leave and there's no like reproducibility there's no scalability there's no there's no way of putting this into the entire company it only works in marketing for example i yeah. think i think that's the problem a lot of people are trying to solve rather than 
teaching a data scientist how to go about like their best best practice for coding, for example. Like I don't think that's I don't think that's the pitch. No. So I I, I think I probably come in from the other way that we talked before about like for me it's the it's the business's responsibility to be invested and engaged and know exactly kind of what they want. So set those, you know, what are the what do you want to achieve? And and that should be a conversation with you know the senior data scientists or whatever to, to make sure that those things are achievable. Um but then then the the MLOps is part of the job. I know I've, I've maybe softened my cynicism somewhat. Um was now I'm kind of managing more people and, and trying to grow teams. I kind of seen these, you know, I used to just, you know, bullshit bingo, call out these things that are crazy. Um, well, actually, when I, when I was at Metafuse, the CTO that I talked about, he was, you know, background from Y Combinator, all this stuff. And I remember a one-to-one with him. <laughs> I probably rather arrogantly, and I do, do regret this now, sat down in front of him and said, oh, what's the... What, what's the fad of the week or something like that? Because he was all about these, you know, making the boat row faster by going in the same direction, all that <laughs> stuff. But, but I've actually realised that sometimes these things are, are very useful as a as a framing tool and to try and bring people together. And sometimes you've almost got to go too far and then people will buy into them a little bit. So for me, yeah, soften the cynicism a little bit. And I still think MLOps is an expected part of the job. But it is it is a useful phrase to explain to stakeholders or set expectations with junior data scientists who mightn't have that that experience. Do you think as well? And this is off the top of my head. Do, do you think there's a part of it where you might have got a little bit fortunate in that you worked with someone like Paul, for example, who probably instilled quite a lot of these what you might call MLOps practices now from his software engineering background into the Metafuse product. So you just kind of were used to working like that. Yes, <laughs> I, yeah. I still I still have nightmares about not linting my code or something like that. But yeah, it's and he, he was he was never kind of angry about. It's it just kind of matter of fact, like these are just best practices and yeah. You know, but that's a, there's a company that I'm the reason I was actually asking you about it. There's a company I, I know that are doing some work in this area, and they are coming at it from a DevOps and software engineering backgrounds, and they're noticing there's gaps in a lot of data science projects where if you ran them, and I don't mean run them exactly like a DevOps project because it's not the same tooling or anything like that, but with the same kind of mindset. But yeah, if if, if someone like you and other people in the industry are used to working with people like that, because there's definitely examples that I can think of off the top of my head where there's almost like someone's made their way up to head of data science or senior data scientist, and they've never really had that type of like background or um, ability to learn some of these things. They just hack together solutions and then they make another, they make something totally new the next time they're doing it. Um, and it works because the company they're working for, that's fine. But like I said, when it comes to scaling that, or if, if, if that person ever left, they'd probably be screwed. Yeah. I think, I think you're, Reflecting, I absolutely right about kind of experience with with different managers and that being instilled because I guess those millennial trailblazers of data science kind of fell into these roles and that that education you know some people went down the software route or the statistics route or whatever and yeah may, maybe reflecting I'm quite lucky to have had that uh, that fast education of of software development I guess and best practice there. Yeah, because I suppose some people might, because the software engineering team is quite large, they'll just never see that world. So they'll just see, here's the model. Can we get it into production? Like, there's no, there's nothing else to it. Whereas, obviously, yeah, you've been involved from when there's been no data, some data, a new product, like suddenly a real time product that has hundreds of millions of like data points, like all that stuff. So you've probably, like, the scale of your career has probably went quite nicely for what people are calling MLOps now because you've just kind of had to deal with it. Yeah, so ba- basically from from masses onwards, I have fallen into lucky, fortuitous opportunities and ended up uh, where I am. <laughs> I, I don't think it's all down to luck. Um, but I think it, it shows that working with different people, though, is quite important. Like, you learn loads Definitely. from different people. But also, you've managed to take that on and now share it with other people which is also quite important 
we've already touched on this, but we'll, we'll go into hiring just a tiny little bit more. Um, so you've obviously been on both sides of the fence. I, w- I was going to say relatively recently. I mean, you've been at Met- um, at Netasia for a while now, but yeah. you know what you know what I mean. Like in the last kind of five years, you've been both a candidate and a hiring manager. Mm-hmm. Um, good and bad, like we've just went through. But the team you've built is so good. Do you think that your experiences working at all these different companies helped you hire quite well? I I think I think somewhat so it kind of I think having a breadth of different experiences certainly helps try and you know ask the right questions and, and look for the right things. I think a lot of times companies fall down the trap of just doing tech tests or not not asking the right questions um I, when it comes to hiring like i'm i think I'm, I'm pretty relaxed so like it's more for me about the soft skills and i always just try and look for people's aptitude to learn and and i think if someone can do that and they they've not got a big ego and they can you know communicate relatively well then they make a good data scientist, software engineer, whatever. And there's probably bias from experience working with, um, so someone I worked with at Metafuse, by far the best developer I've, I've ever worked with, but thought it was terrible. Um, he, he is basically, I think he said, can I get into his thirties? And they'd done all, all kinds of things. I think he'd like run a fancy dress shop. He'd done all kinds of different jobs, built computers at scan. And he was like, I'm just going to teach myself to, to code and just being able to learn stuff and and apply things and demonstrate that is is the skill for for all of these jobs places like north coders um other other coding academies are probably available but like that 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 kind of skill set and just throwing yourself in and learning and demonstrating that is is what we look for nice yeah no it makes sense and and uh yeah it still kind of annoys me to this day that the, the kind of tech test years of experience like the kind of cliched recruitment stuff like it just doesn't work and like the biggest thing i think people are noticing now is we've got clients like literally throwing money about for us to help them find data engineers because they all want six years of data engineering experience with like spark python aws and gcp and azure and they want them for unlimited budget and then we're like well but they don't exist or sorry they do exist but there's not very many of them um and they're not looking to move so what's your what's plan b yeah and plan b should be hiring a smart switched on person with an aptitude to learn like you just said um and not expecting them to know everything straight away and they could probably hire some unbelievable people yeah yeah i mean uh, as i say like no not not saying that i'm unbelievable but both <laughs> metafused and and at Netasia, like felt way out of my depth. I didn't I didn't know any spark before I joined Netasia. And I remember talking to Paul, um, I stayed in touch with him. I was like, oh, I've taken this job, and you know they they're expecting all this stuff, and I, I can't really do it. Like I'm aware of it, and I've done some. And yeah, I think it's just that ability to to learn, which again is just the that that is the thing for me. Yeah, I think if you can give someone a bit of time to learn your stack or a particular area then it'll be fine like i suppose as long as they've got the basics like they've they understand what python is and they've got some sort of commercial awareness hopefully then you you can kind of pick everything else up but yeah i think it's a, it's a time thing i mean like we, it goes back to what we said earlier companies want to make more money so taking you as the head of data science out for six weeks to train someone on spark for example maybe some companies just don't have that in them but they're going to have to because there's no data engineers. And then some people have asked us to find machine learning engineers and tried to pretend that it's something different when it's it's the same tech stack, um, <laughs> and it's roughly the same salary. So like it just it, it's, there's just so many people asking for the same thing. So I think there's a lot there's a lot of blurred lines in the in the industry and jobs and and so on. And even even within a company, I think those job titles can be wildly different to what they are elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that I mean that makes our job hard because we're trying to match people up. But also it makes someone who's trying to like plan out their next move, like what 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 are they looking for? They don't really know. Um but yeah, when you got that machine learning engineer role, like nobody was called that. No. <laughs> like no, not really anyway. 
and yeah, but you were doing something similar to what you'd already done, so it kind of made sense. And I was going to say what were your top tips for growing a data team, but you pretty much just nailed it, like aptitude for learning. Yeah, aptitude for learning, empathy, lack of ego, just like I think it take a lot from the academic world in that you know everyone should be striving to do the same thing and like i have learned scaling a team to 10 that completely flat structures are very difficult to scale and often yeah. often not even the best thing to support you know recent grads may feel a little overwhelmed in a flat structure but where possible keeping that flat structure and and collaboration is is the key you know technical meetings and ideas shouldn't be hierarchical um, yeah it's just flat, um, <laughs> flat structures are a bit like agile right like everyone says they do agile and everyone says they work in a flat structure but like sometimes you don't have to and like people should probably say they work in a flat as possible structure <laughs> that's what i say yeah because yeah, because a completely flat structure is going to go wrong at some point and an yeah. overly you, you, hierarchical structure is going to be awful you, you still need that that support structure um and, and to to enable that growth you know people work in different ways and where possible you've got to try and accommodate that yeah some people hate making decisions for example which is why you some you should have a senior data scientist who can kind of help with some of that um yeah. so yeah loads of those things that's us unless you want to talk about the spurs man city game <laughs> i'm all right thanks <laughs> do you know the annoying thing this is going to go out way after the spurs man city game so i'll probably look like a dick when whoever you're, whoever you're playing on sunday gets leathered but um it is what it is um the only man city fan we've ever had on the show oh really well i'm making it uh, up but i'm guessing yeah maybe i i'm not even too proud of being a man city fan these days i used to kind of like it when we were really bad and you know you'd win occasionally and get picked on a bit at school but it's yeah because yeah, you were the only city <laughs> fan when everyone else was a united fan exactly and now everyone's just went the other way yeah and you, you always have to clarify it's like I was a City fan when we were bad, you know. Like, yeah, I'm I've, not, seen, I've, seen play, I've seen us play third division. Yeah. <laughs> ah, you can enjoy it, it's fine. Um, all right, well, thank you so much for coming on. Really do appreciate it. It was great to, great to finally set this up. Yeah, no worries. Cheers. Cheers for having me.